Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Joseph Nye. Professor Nye is a former high government official in the Carter and Clinton administrations. He is the author of a good number of well-known books, including to my mind, the best rebuttal to Paul Kennedy's book on the rise and fall of the great powers, Bound to Lead. He's also the originator of the concept of soft power. And today, we are speaking about his newest book, Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy, from FDR to Trump, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Nye. Nice to be with you. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Well, generally speaking, uh, People argue in international affairs and in the literature on international affairs that morals don't matter, that uh, interests, national interests bake the cake, and then politicians come along and sprinkle a little moral icing on a decision, but uh, uh, basically it's all national interest that determines everything. Um, And my argument essentially is if you believe that, you're going to get history wrong. What do you mean exactly in the context of the book by, quote, good moral reasoning, unquote? Well, very often people will say, if we do it, it's good, which is a non sequitur, or that uh, if uh, uh, it expresses high moral ideals, it has moral clarity, and therefore it's good. And my argument is no, that in fact, when we make judgments about complex moral decisions, we do it in three dimensions, or good moral reasoning does it in three dimensions. One is, were the intentions good? Second, were the means that were used good and appropriate? And third, did it have good consequences? Uh, that's what I call 3D morality. And all too often, we skip that. Uh, for example, Ari Fleischer, who was George W. Bush's press secretary, praised Bush for his moral clarity. But if you look at the invasion of Iraq, uh, having good intentions uh, did not prevent us from having inappropriate means and disastrous consequences in moral terms. What are, for you, the sources of American exceptionalism? Well, in the past, Americans have uh, uh, been a a liberal society, which at least expresses the values of the individual and individual freedom. And uh, it has expressed this as a general ideology, going back to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, But it's also worth remembering that we don't always live up to it. Nonetheless, the the view that we tend to uh, privilege uh, the individual freedom, democracy, uh, leads us to think we're different, that we are exceptional. Uh, 
for you is the do you believe that the liberal international order is over and if so why well the term liberal international order is a bit of a misnomer because uh, it never was fully liberal and it never included the whole world during the it, it basically is identified or associated with the period after 1945 when Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower essentially established the institutions such as the United Nations, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, and so forth, that we call the liberal international order. But it never included half the world. It didn't include the Soviet Union or China. Uh, indeed, you might argue that after the British left in India, it didn't include India uh, fully. So it was never fully liberal. It was never uh, fully global. Uh, but it did provide a broad framework for the states that were within it about a relatively open international trading system, uh, relatively open international commons such as freedom of the seas, relatively stable international financial system, though that always had some hiccups. Uh, and this provided what you might call global public goods, things that were good for the U.S., but could also be good for other countries that were within the system. Uh, whether it's over or not is an issue of hot debate. Um, some say that uh, the rise of China as another power which is not liberal will end that order. Others say the rise of Trump as a populist uh, who is uh, not an adherent to multilateral institutions uh, will end the order. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, but we certainly do see new challenges. Uh, how do you differentiate liberalism from what you refer to in the book as cosmopolitanism? Well, cosmopolitanism is based more on equality, liberalism more on freedom, if we go back to the classic meanings of the terms. Cosmopolitanism means that each one is equal to one, that all humans are, uh, are equal merit, and uh, in the eyes of the God or in the eyes of morality, uh, and uh, that means that you have a responsibility to help others, to reach out for humanitarian purposes and so forth. Um, with liberalism, it relates more to ensuring human rights, freedoms, uh, procedures, rule of law, and so forth. But uh, they're, the two are related to each other, but they're not exactly the same. What are you referring to when you make reference to, quote, three-dimensional moral reasoning, unquote? Well, by three-dimensional moral reasoning, I'm really echoing something that goes all the way back to uh, uh, St. Augustine and just war theory, but then in the fourth century, but then becomes secularized and becomes the basis for international humanitarian law and indeed for the Uniform Code of Military Justice in the U.S. today, and it says that you have to have uh, right and intent, that you have to have means which discriminate between uh, uh, civilians and non-combatants and which are proportional to the ends, and you have to have a, pros a reasonable prospect of success. Just saying I'm going to do the impossible and making a mess of things uh, is not a moral outcome. And uh, in the book, how do you differentiate skeptics from realists? Well, skeptics basically say none of this matters. So I'll give you an example of a skeptic. When I was 
working in the State Department on nuclear issues, I turned to a French official I was working with and I said, what do you think are the moral implications of, uh, of the negotiations that we're doing? And he said, I never worry about morality. The only thing I worry about is the interests of France. He had just made a profound moral judgment, though he wasn't really aware that he had done so. Uh, so that's an example of a skeptic. It, it, it Basically, none of this matters. Or as I put it at the beginning, uh, interest bake the cake, the rest is just icing dribbled on to make it look pretty. A realist takes a uh, somewhat skeptical view because he or she will say that uh, there's no international government. This is the realm of self-help. Uh, we have to think about survival. Therefore, we're often put into corners moral corners where we have to choose the least of evils, uh, but they are not amoral. They're, they're not saying that uh, it doesn't matter at all. What they say is in circumstances like that, prudence becomes a prime virtue, uh, and you have to ask, what are the best things I can do given the circumstances I face? That's not the same as saying morality doesn't matter at all, that the skeptic says. It just says the conditions for morality are extremely constrained by the nature of international politics. In the book, you have a scorecard uh, for uh, each president. Can you explain uh, what the categories you employ in order to come up with those scores? Well, I, I try to break out these different uh, categories of intentions, means, and consequences into some more detail and then assess how different presidents uh, uh, behaved in relation to that. I think in, most in, in, in terms of intentions, you have to realize that these stated goals or intentions that a leader will uh, express are bound to be good. That's, after all, how you get elected in a democracy. But uh, the motives, the actual day-to-day -day motives that drive actions may be somewhat different. For example, if you're very ego-involved with your position or if you think that a, a given decision is going to make you look like a coward, uh, you may divert or uh, depart from your good intentions uh, for the sake of, uh, of your own personal motives. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, for example, with his fear of being seen as a coward if he ended the Vietnam War is, uh, is an example where Motives mean and uh, and means uh, uh, sorry. Motives and intentions were not exactly the same. Another uh, uh, dimension of intentions is is prudence. In other words, it's not enough just to uh, to say good moral uh, things and to uh, try to accomplish them. There has to be a balance of values and uh, risks. Is if you if you say I want to bring uh, freedom to uh, Iraq, which President George W. Bush said, uh, if you don't realize that there those values are good, but the risks are extremely high, then you lack prudence. And uh, so, uh, intentions have to look not just at uh, at the moral vision, but also at the uh, the ability to accomplish them or the degree of prudence which you insert in your moral vision. So for that's it for intentions, which is I try to take that of the three major uh, uh, ideas of three-dimensional
conventional morality. Uh, I try to bring in some nuances or dimensions. On means, uh, there one can look at the means related to the use of force that are handed down from just war theory, which is proportion uh, and discrimination between civilians and non-civilians or combatants and non-combatants. Combatants. And um, also there are liberal means, which is do show respect for the rights and institutions of others. In other words, if we argue that uh, liberty and the rights of others matter, then it behooves us to live up to that when we apply the means for our foreign policy. And finally, the third dimension of of a moral okay. foreign policy, the consequences. Uh, the first and perhaps most important are what you might call the fiduciary consequences that uh, a leader is elected to protect the interests of the people who elected him or her. And uh, it, it means, was the leader good at promoting America's long-term interests? Uh, but there are other dimensions as well. Uh, did the leader try to minimize the damage to others? In other words, was there a degree of cosmopolitanism? And finally, there's under consequences, there's the educational consequences that a leader has. Um, the Did he leave a, a, a legacy of trust? Was he truthful? Uh, did he elevate the way we talk and think about uh, moral discourse and international relations and so forth? So the three dimensions, uh, uh, intentions and means, uh, and um, and consequences, uh, each can be unpacked into more detail. And I try in the book to do that for each of the uh, 14 presidents that have guided American foreign policy since 1945. Now, uh, the, um, the category of presidents that you characterize or refer to as the founders, FDR, Truman, and Eisenhower, uh, what did they have in common in the context of the book, and how do they differ? Well, uh, FDR, Truman, and Eisenhower had in common the fact that they defined the American national interest in a ways that was broad and long-range, and thereby could provide public goods that were good for others as well as good for us. Uh, remember, after 1918, when the United States became the dominant power after tipping the balance in World War I, uh, we treated into isolationism in the 1930s. Roosevelt participated in that in the 30s, but he came to realize that this was a bad way of defining the national interest. Uh, America first didn't mean America alone, it meant America and others. And that's why he was insistent on having international financial institutions. They sometimes call those the Bretton Woods institutions, the monetary fund, the bank, and uh, laid the plans for the United Nations, which Truman, of course, uh, carried to fruition. And Truman also had the Marshall Plan and the institutions that along went along with that as well as developing security framework in the form of NATO. And Eisenhower, who originally uh, was uh, expressed some skepticism in the political campaign of 52 about Truman, but in fact wound up implementing 
uh, Truman's uh, uh, policy uh, pretty completely. And uh, those three men uh, basically laid the basis for American post-war foreign policy. Uh, it wasn't until President Trump ran in the election of 2016 that you had a candidate of a major political party who cast doubt on that, who who interpreted America first in a much narrower way, who uh, downgraded the role of alliances, and who had uh, uh, contempt for multilateral institutions. And uh, so in that sense, there's a big difference between the early presidents and the, the latest president. Uh, as to how they differed among themselves at the time, uh, Roosevelt had the shortest period because he died in 45. Truman was uh, crucial in terms of implementing Roosevelt's vision. And Eisenhower was crucial uh, with his military background um, uh, and his, his uh, uh, legitimacy in the Republican Party for bringing around many people who otherwise might have been isolationists or might have rejected that uh, that post-45 rejection of the isolationism of the 30s. Of the three, you give uh, President Truman the best score. Why was that? Well, Truman had some very hard decisions to make, and um, he took them. One, he's often blamed for dropping the atomic bomb, late morally for dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. People forget that there was a third bomb, which he refused to drop. And in 1950, when he was told by General MacArthur that he could avoid defeat in the Korean War and save his presidency by bombing uh, 25 to 40 Chinese cities with nuclear weapons, he said no, wasn't going to kill that many women and children. Um, if he had taken a different decision and nuclear weapons had been Come regarded as normal warfighting weapons rather than just for deterrence, the world we live in today would look very, very different. Now you give uh, up the three Eisenhower the worst score. Uh, why was that? Well, it's a worst score in relative terms. I mean, after all, he he's still regarded in my top four, uh, uh, my top quartile, if you want, among the presence. But Eisenhower in, in, uh, engaged in a number of covert interventions, which with 2020 hindsight after the Cold War uh, looked like they weren't that necessary and certainly left long-run residues of trouble for us. Uh, one was overthrowing the, uh, the Arbenz government in Guatemala in 54 before that, uh, returning, overturning uh, the uh, uh, the Mossadegh government, the nationalist government in Iran, uh, and uh, we were left in, with a number of, of uh, problems that plague us to this day as a result of some of those early actions. But again, I, I, seen in perspective, uh, they pale compared to the fact that uh, uh, many of the other steps that Eisenhower took were uh, were get high moral ranking. Now, of the next uh, group, uh, would it be true to say that um, in terms of soft power that uh, President Kennedy um, was, um, uh, you can say, in the league by himself 
perhaps the best usage or the best uh, originator or um, the best uh, person to um, exhibit soft power in a positive sense uh, since perhaps, not, if not FDR, then perhaps President Wilson? Yes. Uh, Kennedy had a wonderful capacity to express uh, moral ideals, uh, and uh, I give him high credit for that. He had some other failings and other problems, such as the Bay of Pigs or the the, uh, the way he handled the DM coup in, in Vietnam, uh, which means that he doesn't get into the pantheon of the top four. But uh, in terms of his ability to appeal to uh, people around the world with his rhetoric and his vigor and also programs he started, such as the as the Peace Corps or the uh, Alliance for Progress or the effort to put a man on the moon, uh, these definitely were very important uh, uh, ways of American promoting American soft power. Now, in the case of uh, President Johnson, you seem to um, ascribe uh, his uh, decision-making, which resulted in the militarization of uh, the American involvement in uh, South Vietnam as mostly personal in nature, uh, why don't you consider the more structural aspect a la Leslie Gelb's um, thesis? Well, there is a... Uh, Johnson inherited the, the Vietnam War. Uh, he, uh, uh, in that sense, there's, there was a structural factor which the, the machinery had been set in place but remember, uh, Eisenhower, though he set the machinery in place, when he was asked to send American troops uh, to save the French at Dien Bien Phu, he said, no, the jungles will follow them up by the divisions. So even though he had, had uh, uh, been part of the organization of the structure, uh, he had the common sense to realize that the consequences were were out of reach, going back to my three dimensions evening. Eisenhower was prudent. Uh, Kennedy uh, basically increased the number of troops in Vietnam that Eisenhower had put there from about 1,000 to about 16,000, but he kept them in the role of military advisors. He wouldn't let them take a full combat role. And uh, the number of Americans killed in Vietnam by the time Kennedy was assassinated, probably a range of 160 or so. Uh, Johnson... Uh, basically didn't, he, he, he inherited this structure, but he didn't have the prudence that Kennedy had, and he intended to engage more in wishful thinking. And uh, that George Bundy, and so we, we wound up with 565,000 American soldiers in Vietnam, and probably of uh, the 58,000 who died in Vietnam, probably uh, more than 30,000 uh, were on Johnson's watch. Um, McGeorge Bundy, who was a hawk on Vietnam and advisor of both Kennedy and Johnson, uh, thinks that Kennedy, when he, if he had been reelected in '64 rather than assassinated, uh, would have pulled out. Uh, Johnson, of course, did the opposite. He escalated in a massive way, and Bundy attributes it more to Johnson's uh, fear of being seen as a coward whereas Kennedy wanted to be seen as smart. 
so Johnson, his personality um, made a big difference. I mean, he was caught in a structure which had been created by others, but he sort of poured gasoline on the fire, so to speak. Why do you regard all three Vietnam-era presidents, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, as, quote, ethical failures, unquote? Well, because I think Vietnam was one of the the great failures of American post-war foreign policy. One way of thinking about it is we succumb to what we call the domino theory, that if one country fell, all would fall, and that was a mistake. We should have seen it as checkers. Uh, red, black, red, black, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and then you would have seen that Russia, uh, you color Russia red, you color China black, you color Vietnam red, you color Cambodia black. And if you had had that image in your mind, you could have saved, uh, you know, 58,000 American lives and could also have, uh, avoided uh, the loss of uh, millions of uh, Vietnamese and other lives. And uh, the failure to step back and see it uh, was a moral failure, which goes beyond any one of these presidents. But um, uh, collectively, uh, they all share some of the blame. Now, in the next group of presidents which begins with uh, President Ford and President Carter, um, in terms of his political personality, was not President Carter rather similar to his fellow Georgian Woodrow Wilson? Uh, Carter uh, was, a, is, was good at expressing some high ideals, uh, and he gets great credit for elevating the role of human rights in American foreign policy which has been a major source of American soft power. Um, he, he shared some of the rhetorical uh, capacities of, of uh, Woodrow Wilson. But Woodrow Wilson was by far the better orator and uh, far the, uh, what, uh, the, the greater rhetorician in terms of shaping ideals. Uh, Jimmy Carter uh, was a very moral man uh, probably in his personal traits much more so than Wilson. Uh, Wilson had a bad record, for example, on racial issues. Carter had a very good record. So uh, there are distinctions of that sort. But in foreign policy, Wilson was by far the better rhetorician uh, than Carter. But Carter deserves credit for raising the, uh, the profile of human rights in American foreign policy. Why did you end up giving Presidents Ford and Carter such high grades? Well, partly they were both uh, there for a short time. They didn't have time to make any huge mistakes, uh, such as a Vietnam or an Iraq war. Uh, And so they used force uh, with uh, proportion and discrimination. And uh, uh, in the time they were there, they were capable of being Good fiduciaries, good trustees of uh, American interests, and they also had uh, beneficial um, uh, effects in terms of moral discourse. Uh, Ford, who just what he called the long nightmare of, uh, of the Nixon years, and Carter, in terms of his elevating the, the role of human rights. 
Would it be correct to say that President Reagan enjoyed what uh, is referred to as moral luck as opposed to President Carter, who did not? Well, it's absolutely true that uh, Reagan had moral luck and Carter didn't. They, Reagan had some other skills and, and um, in addition. Uh, but on the moral luck factor, uh, Carter was faced with a declining uh, Soviet Union, which thought it still had to act strong and aggressive. So you had Brezhnev and the, the old men, if you like, uh, who were... Unable or unwilling to to uh, negotiate in a in a serious way, uh, Reagan inherited Gorbachev, who basically uh, wanted to end the Cold War, uh, not on the terms he ended it. He didn't want to end the Soviet Union, but he he did want to change the nature of the of the Cold War. So Reagan had a, a bargaining par- partner, an interlocutor, and Carter never did. And that was that's what I mean by moral luck. On the other hand, Reagan had the skills to actually understand Gorbachev and what he might accomplish with Gorbachev and to negotiate quite successfully with him. In retrospect, um, how morally justifiable was it to have the PRC uh, join the World Trade Organization as President Clinton did? Well, the idea that Clinton had was that uh, China was going to be growing in strength and that a weak, fragmenting uh, China that was throwing its weight around, as Mao's China had done, was a greater danger to us than a China which was constrained by some degree of a, of a, of a framework. And uh, that was the idea. But people sometimes call that naive that China... Uh, has thrown its weight around within the trading system. That's true, but uh, it's also worth noticing that the first thing that Clinton did before he invited China to join the World Trade Organization was to reaffirm the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. And that was important because it meant that in the three major powers of the Far East, the U.S., China, and Japan, the U.S. and Japan were two. China was one, and in basic balance of power 101, uh, it's better to be part of the two than the one. So Clinton uh, was not so naive. His feeling is that if you take out that insurance policy and have a, a, a strong position uh, with the U.S.-Japan alliance, which he revivified, uh, then you can afford to uh, try to get China to behave a little better. Uh, by including it in international institutions. He referred to that not as containment, but as shaking the environment that would surround the rise of China. Although you don't mention in the book, I suppose one could also give uh, President Clinton uh, credit for his uh, intervention in a sort of um, soft Rooseveltian, uh, T.R. Rooseveltian sense of uh, a soft stick for uh, interposing U.S. aircraft carriers between uh, the PRC and uh, Taiwan in 1995 when there was a brief crisis between the, those two countries? Uh, yes, it was actually early 96, and they weren't between, they weren't in the Taiwan Strait, they were just outside of Taiwan, but the Chinese had been practicing uh, 
what might be called missile diplomacy, dropping missiles in the sea off the coast of Taiwan and uh, 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 to intimidate Taiwan. And uh, uh, Clinton uh, sent the two carriers uh, off the coast of Taiwan to send a signal to China that this was unacceptable. Given that you do not have her book in your bibliography, uh, would it be correct to assume that you do not uh, agree with Samantha Power's criticism of the Clinton administration? Well, unfortunately, uh, A, Samantha is a close friend, and I've read the book and agree with it. Uh, there are many good books that are on the bibliography, and, uh, unfortunately, but it doesn't mean I haven't read them or talked to the author about them, which I have. But on Samantha's criticism of in the book, we mentioned uh, the problem from hell, uh, which looks at the issue of genocide in Rwanda. I do discuss the genocide in Rwanda uh, in some detail, including Clinton's retrospective view that he was mistaken. Uh, would it be correct to say that in terms of foreign policy, you um, put uh, George Bush the Younger in a category very similar to Woodrow Wilson, which I suppose for a lot of people would be surprising. Well, that's right. Both Wilson and Bush um, had a freedom agenda. They were they they expressed uh, liberal ideals, but without adequate prudence about could they accomplish it. And when they couldn't accomplish it, uh, they often had uh, the result was immoral consequences. Uh, for Wilson, you might charge the failure of, uh, of the success, uh, failure of the League of Nations, and the resulting uh, uh, excess of the 1930s uh, to his account. And with Bush, uh, though he, in his second uh, national security strategy in 2006, uh, talked about democratization and freedom. Uh, basically, the, the net consequences of the American intervention in Iraq were to exacerbate the civil wars between Sunnis and Shia and to restore and revivify uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq, which uh, morphed into ISIS, the Islamic State, with horrendous consequences. Would it be correct to um, state that... Uh you regard the criticism of the Obama administration for timidity misplaced given the economic situation in the United States at uh, the time that he was president, particularly in his uh, first term, and uh, particularly as it related to American policy in Syria and Libya? Well, Obama, when he first came into office in 2009, had little choice but to focus on the global economic crisis, and he deserves uh, good credit for that because in uh, 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 basically strengthening the group of 20 and uh, arranging for the American uh, uh, monetary support for other countries uh, by lending dollars through the Federal Reserve and so forth, he helped to stave off something which uh, might have evolved into a another Great Depression. Instead, we had the Great Recession, which was bad enough, but that's something he inherited, couldn't do much about, and it's a good thing that he spent his early efforts uh, very heavily on that. But uh, by the end of his first term, 
in 2011, you had the so-called uh, uh, Arab Spring, uh, in which he had to face decisions of what do you do with with uh, Syria, what do you do with Libya, what do you do with Egypt, and um, those were extraordinarily difficult um, uh, changes because what we found out was that the Arab Spring, while it represented a liberal uprising, it was of a very small surface uh, liberalism, and that the that the deeper roots, uh, both of conservatism and of Islamism, uh, were going to reassert themselves. And uh, as he tried to deal with that, you've got policies which are somewhat inconsistent. What do you make of what one may characterize as the kitchen sink realism of the Trump administration? Well, I'd give Trump uh, credit if in kitchen sink realist terms uh, for uh, basically saying to the Chinese, uh, you've got to change your behavior, that uh, you've been taking too much of a free ride on the international economic system, particularly the trading system, and uh, in, a, in a very crude way, uh, he got their attention. Uh, now, could he have gotten their attention by tariffs on China without putting tariffs on American allies? Uh, I think he could have, but uh, uh, but give him credit for uh, getting China to realize that the strategy they'd been pursuing uh, had run aground and that they were going to have to change. I What that means is that if Hillary Clinton or a Democrat had been elected in 2016, you would still had a wake-up call for China, but uh, Trump really gave him a, a solid uh, clangor of a bell to, to wake up to. So I think he deserves credit for that. But I don't think it's uh, a kitchen table or kitchen can realism to weaken our alliances with NATO when you have Putin as a threat in Ukraine or in uh, the Baltics. And, uh, you know, downgrading uh, our, our alliances is not realism. It's, uh, it's just the opposite. Would it uh, be true to say that uh, overall you're optimistic the United States will successfully handle the rise of China, but that uh, you're more troubled by what you call our moral vision at home? Well, that's right. I think we can manage the rise of China. I'm influenced there by Lee Kuan Yew, the former uh, Prime Minister of Singapore, who um, once, when I asked him, would China surpass the U.S.? <clears throat> he said they'll try, but they won't make it because while they can rely upon the uh, talents of 1.3 billion people, which was the number then, uh, the U.S. can rely on the talents of 7 billion people and can import the best of them from around the world and recreate them with a diversity that can never be equaled by ethnic Han nationalism. Uh, so in that long-run view, I, I still have a degree of optimism about the U.S. being able to manage the rise of China. But my concern is as we think about China and think about the problems we face, we've got to realize that in some purposes, China is a competitor 
and rival, and we're going to have to be very tough with them, have to use hard power. But in other areas, we have to cooperate with China because of these new transnational challenges. Uh, climate change, where the U.S. and China put 40% of the of the global greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, uh, we can't solve that alone. China can't solve that alone. And uh, we see this also with the current uh, coronavirus uh, pandemics, don't know borders, uh, and the idea that you can slam close the borders and avoid any of these problems isn't true, nor is it true that we'll be able to deal with some of cyber threats, which are transnational, uh, or that we'll be able to manage problems of international financial stability if we act purely alone. So the attitudes at home uh, that are crucial are to realize that you can have power over other countries, uh, for example, our competition with China and the South China Sea, but also you need to have power with other countries, which are cooperating with the framework of the Paris Climate Accords to try to allow us to begin to deal with some of these other transnational challenges we face. And American attitudes, uh, as Lyndon Johnson's what put it, are not very good at walking and chewing gum at the same time. We want a clear villain or a clear Cold War or black and white, uh, good and bad. And in fact, we don't realize that some of the hardest moral choices that we face, the ones that I described in the last chapter of my book, are going to require us to change our own attitudes to deal with them successfully. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Well, that morals matter, and therefore, if they matter, we have to become much better at our own moral reasoning, which means thinking in all three dimensions that I described. Or as Henry Kissinger put it, many of the moral issues are hard calls there, because when you balance out these three dimensions, you find... Not all good things work in the same direction at the same time. At the same. Uh, uh, so many of the hard decisions are in the 51-49 range of decisions, but that doesn't excuse us from trying to think clearly and hard about what's the most moral response that's possible in the circumstances that we face. Well, with that observation, Professor Nye, which I agree with, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. I enjoyed it.